Well, I'm going to start with a profound truth. Are you guys ready for it? Are you sure you're ready for it? Men and women are different. <gasps> it's true. And yes, anatomically we're different. That's obvious. But I mean in our very being, in our personhood. And I have always known this, but since getting married, I have realized this to a whole other level. I could give you hundreds of examples, but I'm going to give you one example. My wife, Skye, and I process information very differently. There was a book that came out about 20 years ago called Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. Do you guys remember that? And the idea is that literally, neurologically, men and women's brains just process differently. And so men like to, by and large, in general, compartmentalize things. We put things in a little box. And once that box is done, it's out of sight, out of mind like a waffle square, whereas women tend to, like spaghetti, multitasking, thinking about all the different scenarios, how does this affect this and this affect this, and so we would, early on in marriage, we'd have a conversation, we'd get done with the conversation, I would put that conversation in its proper box, put the lid on the box, put it back in storage, out of sight, out of mind. Weeks later, sometimes months later, we'd be talking, and Sky would say, hey, do you remember that thing from months ago? And we said this, and I, I'm thinking about, listen, with our daughters, what if the, we put them into preschool, and then they go to the Y, but at the Y, I don't know, it would cost this, and we're going to have to get a budget app, and oh, you know what, we should get a financial advisor and plan ahead. Maybe we should think about, if we're going to plan ahead and, and look at our finances, we should look at Christmas gifts, not for 2022, but maybe 2025. And she's just, and so here I am with my box, nice and neat lid on, and she's just flipping lids all over over the place, boxes everywhere. It's, it's you know, I, I told her, it's kind of like, um, if you've seen Aven Avengers Infinity War, Doctor Strange, where he looks at, you know, the time zone, 20 million different possibilities, different timelines, just, I mean, she's thinking about every possible thing. Now, I'm not saying this to demean her, but to celebrate her, we just process differently. I could give you so many other examples there's a nursery rhyme, what are little boys made of? Snip snails and, anyone know? Puppy dog tails, what are little girls made of? Sugar spice and everything nice. Now is that true? Well, we have two little girls, <laughs> and you're right. It is true. They are so sweet and spicy. And I realize that makes them sound like a salad dressing, but they're so, they're so sweet and cute and cuddly, and we, have, we don't have boys, but we have friends who have boys, and I'm sure they're great too, precocious, but great. So is that what makes a boy, what makes a girl, is that what makes us male and female, that boys simply get into trouble while girls are refined and proper? No, not, not necessarily. In fact, our youngest, she is very precocious and headstrong. I'm positive she's full of puppy dog tails. <laughs> But there's a reality that underlines this nursery rhyme that is vital for us to grasp, even if it sounds trite. Males and females are different. So many similarities, so many commonalities, and yet different, and that's a good thing. And we're going to see why this is good. So my goal here is to see how the Bible shines light on womanhood specifically. How, how does God see women in his eyes and then we're going to go over what this means for all of us, men and women, on a practical level. So let's dig in. First point is this. This is a major point. Identity is a powerful thing. 
Why? Well, much of life is trying to figure out who I am. At the core of my being, who am I? Who are we? This may be perhaps the most fundamental human question in life. Life is a journey of discovery into that very inquiry, who am I? Who are we? And that makes sense, right? In the beginning, God gave us identity, namely to be reflections of who he is to his glory. We were to be worshipers who walked closely with our creator, who had intimate fellowship with the one to whom we worship. But we rejected that. We call that sin. And therefore, brokenness entered humanity. We were made in the the image of God, but that image, that reflection has been distorted, has been broken, has been shattered by our sin in so many ways. And so for all of human history, we have attempted to pick up the pieces, salvage them, scrap them together, and put those pieces together into not the image of God, but into the image of man, into what we surmise is our best version of who we think we should be in our eyes, and that does not lead to anything but destruction. And that is why we stake our ultimate identity claim in a host of other things like sexuality, wealth, status, privilege, possessions, success, pleasures, relationships, ethnicity, vocation, and fill-in-the-blank thousands of other things. And when someone makes something other than God ultimate to who they are, it's misguided worship. It's worship pointed in a broken direction because we were made, created to worship God. And it's why displacing these false objects of worship as our ultimate causes pushback from our world and from within. We are unseating or attempting to unseat these idols on our heart and rightfully elevate Christ back to where he belongs. And that comes with pushback. And like these other temporary pursuits that we fashion as supreme in our hearts, gender can be so easily ingrained into our ultimate identity. But then we look at Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, that's race. There's neither slave nor free, that's status. There is neither male nor female, that's gender, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in context, this is not not minimizing differences. Men and women are not interchangeable, not indistinguishable. It's stating that our ultimate identity is in Jesus. Our primary identity in Christ completely trumps every other identity in anything else. So men and women, by faith in Jesus, are baptized into Christ. That's what it says. Men and women both put on Christ. We both are one in Christ. The Christian life is understanding and growing into our ultimate identity in Jesus. So, let's go back to the beginning. Literally, go back to the beginning in your Bibles. Go to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. But Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. When an engineer designs something, a machine or a process, there is intentionality in that design. There is she or he puts in intentionality in the form, the function for a particular purpose. And God, when he designed us, there was intentionality in form, in function, and purpose. We were made in the image of God. We bear his likeness. There are qualities within all of humanity that emulate who God is. All people have value because we bear his signature. No matter your race, ethnicity, gender, political stance, background, uh, whatever the case may be, everyone has value because we were created in God's image. We bear his signature. And so look at this again. Verse 27, male and female in his image. We are co-bearers of God's image. And thus, we are equal in worth, dignity, value, and status. Not hierarchical in the, in the sense of greater or lesser, not superior, not dominant, equal. And male and female both together reflect aspects of who God is. Both male and female are essential to a fuller picture of God's glory in his image. And so if men and women are made in God's image, then it stands to reason we all reflect the character of God. Men and women are equal in worth, dignity, value, and status, and yet inherently different. There's no way around that. There is God-given gender distinction. For example, and I know this example is banal, but only women can be mothers and give birth to children. And Wives, I'm sure you've told your husband, I wish you could experience the pain of childbirth. Uh, there, there have been times where my wife will say, well, yeah, well, you didn't carry the girls around for nine months, right? So only women can bear children, only women can be mothers, only men can be fathers. Again, that sounds like a trite truth, but there's a distinguishment. There's a discernible difference. And I'm not talking just physical. I don't have a maternal instinct for nurturing. But I have found that is a thing. Uh, my wife just, there's a sixth sense intuition. You know, if something's wrong with our girls, let's say they fall, it's like she just knows. She has spidey sense or something. And, and I don't have that. And so when our girls fall and skin up their knees, they don't run to daddy, they run to mommy. Part of that is might be because I would say, we'll just rub some dirt on it and go back and play outside. But there's this instinct, this desire Maternal instinct for nurturing. So there's, this is one example of many. There's gender distinction, and gender distinction is not a bad thing, but it's been minimized and villainized in our society. So there are two major pitfalls regarding gender distinction. Number one, on one side is overemphasizing our differences to divisive levels, to toxic levels. And society has tried at various points in history to overemphasize one gender to the detriment of the other. And you look throughout history, and it is not, over the centuries, favorable toward women. This is why there are things like misogyny, abuse, the Me Too movement, neglect, sexual harassment, 
male chauvinism. Women were not even able to vote in our country until 1920, 100 years ago. Paternalism, women being minimized, objectified, belittled, ignored, crude jokes. These are sad realities that need to be acknowledged and need to be repented of if we have participated in them. Or if we stood silent and did not voice objections when others participated in them. And I'm going to tell you right now, when I was younger, I made crude jokes that belittled and objectified women. And it's a good thing God is a God of grace. It's a good thing that I'm forgiven, that we are forgiven. Because I never want to do that again. We need to own up to these things. These are all efforts to devalue women, whether intentional or not. Now, on the flip side, we minimalize the beautiful differences, which minimalizes the glory of God. Greater diversity of worshipers, whether you're talking, you know, at at the end of Revelation, it says there were people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, every people group gathered around the throne of Jesus. Why? Because that magnifies the glory of God. Greater diversity of worshipers, including men and women, magnifies the glory of God. But rather than respecting and honoring our differences and seeing them as beautiful aspects of the image and the glory of God, our society, likely as a response to the atrocities committed to women, mostly seeks to blur gender lines. But God did not create us as androgynous creatures. God created a better way. You know when you're in your car, and I don't know if you've ever messed with this, on the car stereo there's that knob where you can turn the knob all the way to bass, you manipulate the sound, or all the way to the treble. I I love messing, even today, when I was a kid, I loved messing with it. Even now, I love messing with that. And so you go all the way to bass, and you hear, (laughs) right? This this beat, you hear the bass drum, you hear the bass guitar, you hear the bass and, and, and baritone voices, and then you flip it all the way to the treble side, and you might hear the wind section, the string section, the sopranos and the altos. Now, when you go to each channel, you are getting an aspect of the song. You're getting a part of the song, but you're not experiencing the full song. And there, there may be times to focus on one channel to better understand the song, but to hear the full song, you must have both channels in harmony and balance. And if we focus on and celebrate man to the detriment of women, we miss God's intended design. And the ladies said, amen. God created and celebrated gender differentiation. In Genesis 1, we have an overview of the creation account from the beginning. God, six times it says, God saw that it was good. So here he's creating everything and he just saw, this is good, it is good. And then on the sixth day, he creates humanity and he said, it says that God saw that it was, behold, what? Very good. We are equal, but we're not the same. And that's good. Very good. Masculinity and femininity are not bad, but sadly, they have been caricatured. So, why did God create women? Well, Genesis 2, let's turn to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 zooms back in to that sixth day with a focused retelling of the creation of humanity. So look at verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is what? Not good. 
that the helper, sorry, that the man should be alone, I will make him a, underline this, a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a, again, underline this, a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It is not good that the man should be alone. So I will make him a helper fit for him. It is not good. In Genesis 1, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And for the first time, God declares a deficiency in creation. Something is not good. Now, interestingly, God does not task, or God does not create a, a woman at that point. God actually tasks Adam, the man, with naming the animals to the point that he feels deep in his soul his aloneness. So here come animals parading, uh, tiger, I'll call that one, uh, I don't know, hippopotamus, that one giraffe. This one's really slow, kind of slothful, sloth. And every time, I can imagine Adam is feeling it in the pit of his stomach, deeper and deeper, something is wrong. Something is amiss. He could feel his aloneness, and God wanted him to sense that he was missing something. He needed to realize this for himself, and so he saw that there was no one like him, no one fit for him, suitable for him. Man was alone, and it was not good. And by serving in this task, man encountered his need, namely a helper fit for him. God was enough for man. Listen, if God created us and nothing else in all creation, that would be enough. God is enough for us. So God was enough for man, but God was not finished with man. So God created woman from man for man, not as his rival, not as his threat, but as his partner. And I love how he does it from his side. Reverend Randy Patton referenced this last week. God didn't take a piece of his skull, meaning women was above him. He didn't take a piece of his foot, meaning women is below him. He took his rib, his side, showing the equality there. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Have you ever waited expectantly for something? Like you just, oh, I can't wait until it comes. I can't wait until it happens. And you wait and wait. And as you're waiting, the eagerness builds. The anticipation builds and builds and builds until you finally see it. You finally have it. And you're like, ha-ha! Woo! Okay, no? No one else? There's just this feeling of exuberance. Look, notice the exuberance here. At last, yes! She's like me in all the right ways. And she's not like me in all the right ways. At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, thank you, Lord. This was a statement of worship. In fact, it is the first recorded worship song spoken because God created woman from man as a helper fit for him. 
Animals would have never sufficed. Dog might be man's best friend, but dog would never be equal partner, never be a helper, never be our complement. Man needed one who was like him, yet not the same. Someone who would be the right fit. Perhaps someone made from him so that he could be reunited with her in oneness as one flesh. Humanity was intentionally designed by God to be composed of male and female. And these two genders complement one another to display the beauty of God more fully. Now listen, this is really important. Uh, Ladies, listen to me. A man does not complete you. Fellas, listen to me. A woman does not complete you. We don't complete each other. Do you guys remember the movie Jerry Maguire with Tom Cruise in the mid-90s? If you don't, that's okay. It's terrible. (laughs) But at the end, Tom Cruise, Jerry Maguire, walks in, and he walks into this house, a living room full of people, and he sees his love interest, his lady, and he says, hey, you complete me. I don't know if he does that, but you complete me. And she's crying, he's crying, and everyone in the house is crying, everyone watching the movie is crying, and it's so sweet. But it's terrible theology. This is not Jerry Maguire theology. We don't complete one another. Only Jesus does that. And that is so crucial for us to understand. If you're single or married, Man, woman cannot complete you. Let Jesus do that. Men and women complement one another. And this is true in humanity. And if it's true in humanity, it's true in the family. We are different, and yet we are meant to work together. So, look again at this passage. Verse 18 and verse 20. There's a significant Hebrew word here. Ezer, translated helper. Now be honest, when you hear the word helper, do you think of it in terms of inferiority? Someone who's subordinate to you? Lower than you? My little helper? Because we shouldn't. Of the 21 times this word helper is used in the Old Testament, twice it's used of women, and 16 times it's used of God. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is our helper. So helper does not indicate second class or lower status. In fact, it implies that the one being helped requires support. Man was alone, and we needed assistance. So God did in his infinite infinite wisdom what he knew to do. He created woman as his helper. Helper is a valued responsibility and a place of honor. So what was woman to help man do? Well, look again at verse, actually chapter 1, verse 26. God says, let them have dominion. Did you catch that? Not let him, not let her, but let what? Them. Men and women were to steward God's creation together as representative royal rulers. God is our father, and when we trust in Jesus he, not only is he our father, but he's our king, is the king of all kings. And he, so he created Adam and Eve to be representative royal rulers. Now, what is a son of a king? What's that called? A prince. A daughter of a king. What's that called? Princess. 
So men and women to, were to rule and reign as princes and princesses, representative royal rulers, together for the king, exercising benevolent dominion over his creation, but in unique ways, in different roles, not in the same way. Men and women, you can put it this way, men and women are co-heirs of Christ. And if you are married in the family, you are partners with your husband. And these partners have unique callings and giftings. Women have God-given special capacities, physically, mentally, emotionally, that are necessary and different from men. And through these, women was to help man in stewarding God's creation. And now, men and women steward the home together, but in different ways, in different roles. Listen, men lead spiritually. I, I believe that with all my heart because Scripture attests to that. In passages like Ephesians 5, Titus 2, First uh, Peter 3, and several others, that's outside the scope of this sermon. You'll hear more about that next week. But men lead spiritually and serve with grace, patience, love, sacrifice, humility, and diligence. So what do women do within the marriage? Well, women support, encourage, counsel, care, and nurture. Let me say that again. Women support, encourage, counsel, care, and nurture. Ray Ortland says it this way. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. Listen to me. This is not, male leadership in the home is not the same as male domination, asserting man's wants and man's will over his wife's. Women were never created to be dominated by men. Look at what God tells Eve in, in Genesis 3.16 as a result of the fall. Here's what he tells Eve, verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So, first of all, the husband leading in the home was a pre-fall condition. This wasn't a result of sin. It was always the design. It was a pre-fall condition, but sin now entered in. And now we have some men who distort their leadership through disrespect, domineering, abuse, neglect, etc. I can keep going. Leading and ruling in terms of Unjust, ungodly domination are not synonymous. Wives, this is not doormat theology where your husband just walks all over you. This is not forced servitude. Now you are called to be servant-hearted. You are called to be respectful. The Bible teaches that men lead in the home, but listen, only Jesus is Lord in your home. Does that make sense? I believe the husband leads in the home, but Jesus is the Lord of the home. So husbands, she is not your slave. She is not your servant at your every beck and call. Well, my wife isn't doing what I'm ordering her to do. She's not submitting, because that's not submission. And quite frankly, that's poor leadership. That's a crude, selfish distortion of submission. You can't weaponize submission. No wonder it's such a dirty word in our society when there's that kind of notion of what submission is. Men lead with love and grace. It should be an honor for her to follow godly leadership. Look at how Jesus led. Look at what Jesus did with the church by selflessly serving. Lead as a servant leader. Wash her feet. Metaphorically and maybe even physically. Serve your wife. And so what does a wife do? 
Well, a wife follows the godly direction of her husband within her household while her ultimate devotion is to Christ above all. She follows his leadership first and foremost. In God's intended design, the husband leads in such a way that the wife grows in her love for and devotion to Jesus. That's the intentionality behind the form, function, purpose, and design in creation. So how should women conduct themselves? Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Beauty is fleeting. And oh, how true that is. I see it in the mirror when I look at myself. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs 31 paints this picture of a godly wife. She's trustworthy. She seeks the good of others. She stewards her household. She's strong, she's determined, she's full of dignity, she's compassionate to the poor, she cares for the needy, she's bold, she's courageous, she speaks wise and kind words, she is diligent in her work, and her, her children call her blessed, and her husband rejoices in her. Now I know, talking to some ladies, they read, uh, maybe this is you, maybe it's not, I don't know. Uh, it would be easy to read Proverbs 31 and go, I will never measure up to that. And if you look at this as a litany of to-do tasks, you have to be this, you have to do this, you ladies, you will get crushed. This is not to make women despair because you will never do these perfectly. These are fruit produced from the gospel at work in a woman's heart. These are not prescriptive words to try to live up your best, to do your best to live up to some standard because that will result in nothing but failure and shame. You will get crushed. This is not prescriptive. These are descriptive. You are growing in these godly traits through Christ in your life. So listen, ladies, listen to me. More than what you do, this is who you already are because of who Jesus already is. Amen? So seek godly character by grace in Jesus. There's so much grace here. Now there's a New Testament equivalent passage. I love this. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God sees true beauty. God created the external person, but I believe he delights so much in the internal person. So we should do the same. Men value women as made in God's image. Don't objectify them. There is so much objectification of women in our society. Don't objectify them. Don't belittle them. Don't minimize them. Hold them in high esteem. Hold them in value. Respect them. And women... Your value is not in achievement, not in performance, not in playing the comparison game. You know, you go on Instagram and you see celebrities and they post pictures of them. They're like, I'm going to be so selfless and post a picture of me without makeup. Mm, right? It's like, come on, you have millions of dollars at your disposal. You have a dietitian, a beautician, a, 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 a workout partner, you know, exercise trainer, you have all this. I have never seen anyone on Instagram post a picture of themselves like right after they wake up with crazy bed hair. Because we post these fake images of us. It's not Facebook, it's fake book. 
And so if you play the comparison game, again, you will get crushed. Your value is not in comparison, not in achievement, not in performance. Find your value in Christ and seek inner character in him alone. So how should women be treated? Write these down. Honored, valued, celebrated, consulted. I'm going to say that again. Honored, valued, celebrated, consulted. Women are so prominently featured in God's redemptive story all throughout Scripture. And the Bible, you know, for the vast majority of history, society has been very patriarchal. And, and, and the Bible features so many stories, not just of men, but of women holding them in value and dignity, featuring them. And I wish I had time to tell their stories and how these women demonstrated godly womanhood, but we see Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Rahab, Deborah, Ruth, Hannah, Abigail, Esther, Mary, Martha, Phoebe, Priscilla, and the list goes on and on. Now, they were not perfect. No Bible character other than Jesus is perfect, So like us, they had faults, they had their warts, but they were admired for their godliness, for their faith. And if you want to see how women should be treated, look at how Jesus interacted with women. Look at how he showed them dignity and value. See, women back then had very little rights. A Jewish man could not talk to a woman in public. They were very much second-class citizens. And then you see Jesus interacting with women. And he honors them, and he respects them, which was so radical, so countercultural. He shows kindness to a woman at a well, not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. The Jews hated the Samaritan. Here's Jesus initiating a conversation with her and showing her honor, a woman who had a very sordid past. And he loves her and he cherishes her. He praises his mother Mary and cares for her while he's dying on the cross. He shows mercy to a woman with bleeding for 12 years. He he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. When she probably has been under shame and guilt her whole life. And here the Lord of Lords and King of Kings shows her honor. He demonstrates love for the two sisters, Mary and Martha. He teaches several times the personhood of woman. He tenderly heals a a woman with a spinal ailment who has hunched over for 18 years. Can you imagine? He ministers to widows. Again, I could keep going and going and going. Women are to be treated with honor and value and respect, celebrated and consulted. So there's a lot we could say in this message. And you may already be thinking, what about this? What about that? You know, when you go to a website and you see the FAQ section, frequently asked questions, There's probably 20 frequently asked questions we could go over, but let me give you just a few. These are the FAQs, if you will, of this message. What about singles? 115 million U.S. adults are unmarried, and I know we have singles in here, so you're thinking, what about me? Listen to me. You are valued, you are loved, and you deserve to be heard and acknowledged and cherished. In fact, there is a whole chapter in the Bible on godly singleness, 1 Corinthians 7. So for single women, some of you are called to be single for a season or maybe for life. 
And that's a beautiful, unique calling, just like marriage is. Regardless, submit to Christ. You may not have a husband, but the church, we are the bride of Christ. So submit to Christ. Find your identity in him. Not in a man. Not in pursuit of a relationship. Again, that will crush you, but be content in your status in Christ unless God calls you to something different, unless he alters your singleness. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. What about gender stereotypes? Throw like a girl. Hit like a girl. Act like a girl. Emotional like a woman. Now, there are some stereotypes out there that are okay, that are beneficial. These are not helpful gender stereotypes. Don't say them. They are incredibly harmful and pejorative. I remember years ago, there was a Super Bowl commercial. I don't even remember what they're advertising, but it's, it, it showed older men and women, and they filmed them, and the person behind the camera says, hey, show what it looks like to throw like a girl. And they'd be like, Ugh. show what it looks like to run like a girl. And they'd be, you know, in a mocking way. And then it showed younger girls, little girls who had never heard that as an insult, and it says, throw like a girl, and they're throwing with all their might, run like a girl, and they're running as hard as they can. And I'm here with two little girls, and I watched this commercial during the Super Bowl with other people around me, and I'm just weeping. Because <laughs> I want my girls to be strong and full of dignity and godly women. So don't use these kind of stereotypes. Mark Chansky says, the false stereotype of a Christian woman being a helpless and frail mouse who passively shades herself under the parasol of her soft femininity and adoringly waits for her husband to do all the heavy lifting is shattered by the scriptures. Biblical womanhood in the home is also not necessarily as the same as doing all the chores, all the household responsibilities like cooking and cleaning and dishes and laundry. That's case by case. That's case dependent on your home. You need to work that out with your spouse. My wife does all the cooking because I'm pretty sure if I cook, I would kill someone. <laughs> you don't want my cooking. But I'll, I'll do the dishes as much as I can. She hates the spice of the dishes. I don't mind doing the dishes. I do my own laundry. I have a weird thing about doing my own laundry. I don't know why, but that's what we worked out. Develop that case-by-case case in your home. That's case-dependent. What about women working outside the home? Well, Titus 2 points to women striving for godly character and stewardship of the home as well as discipling younger women. So ladies, you need to be discipling a lady younger than you. But it does not forbid working outside the home. In fact, Proverbs 31 even describes a wife that we just went over who works a business outside the home, okay? So that's also case dependent. What about women in leadership? Well, the Bible holds to male headship in the home and male eldership in the church. And, and we hold to that. We believe that. But we encourage and celebrate women as leaders in so many contexts. You look at the Bible. You look at Deborah. She led an army. You look at Esther. She was a queen. You look at Lydia, who had a business, seller of purple goods in Acts 16. Did you know that two-thirds of the world's missionaries have been women? We should celebrate that. Now, we would love to see more men go out, but we should celebrate that. Lastly, what about gender confusion? What about gender dysphoria? If you know someone who struggles with that, listen. No, literally, listen to them. Strive for empathy. Strive to meet them where they are. Pray over them. Listen, empathize, and pray before you ever say a word. We are so quick to make assumptions. Listen to their story and value them. And if you're here and you struggle with that, remember identity. 
It's a powerful thing. Your worth should not be in your role, not be in your gender, or what you want your gender to be. So, bottom line, being a woman means first being a disciple of Jesus and bringing him glory in your homes, in your workplaces, in your communities, and in our church. When my wife and I were in seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, we were dating some friends of ours, there was a group of friends who said, hey, we're, we're going to go swing dancing. They go swing dancing every Tuesday night. There was a place downtown Fort Worth where they would do swing dancing. And they're like, you should come. And I'm like, I don't know. When I'm on the dance floor, I have two left feet. It ain't pretty. And, and so I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm uncoordinated in general. And now you ask me to move and gyrate and flail my limbs to the beat, to a rhythm of music, like, forget it. That's not going to be pretty. But it sounded fun, so like, all right, we'll go. So we go swing dancing, and uh, they said, listen, if you don't know how to swing dance that's, dance, that's okay. There's an instructor who for 45 minutes will do a lesson. And he would. He would give, uh, teach us certain moves, teach us the basics, and so he'd say, all right, guys, fellas, you're going to be the lead. So I want you to hold your partner's hand with your left hand, put your right hand around the small of her back, and you're going to, okay, I'm going to teach you this. You're going to go one, two, rock step. One, two, rock step. And then on the third one, here's what you're going to do. You go one, two, rock step. Now I want you to move your left hand across your face while you take your right hand on the small of her back and gently guide her. You are initiating her into a spin. And so we like, all right, I got this. I got this move down, and I did it. And they said, okay, now ladies, you're going to do a mere reflection of that. And so they would do the complete opposite, the complementary moves, if you will. And then... We got that down, and we're now it's open dance time for the next couple hours. And initially, it was pretty ugly, right? <laughs> it was, it was, <laughs> it was not. I'm stepping on her feet. She's like, ah! She's stepping on my feet. We're both trying to lead. Then we're both trying to follow. And I remember literally, Sky goes, Jared, stop! I need you to lead. Do it with gentleness. Do it with grace. But I need you to lead. And once that happened, now. It was beautiful. Now, we don't remember at all any of those moves, right? <laughs> she goes, yeah. We remember one move called the pretzel. And so when we go to, if I do a wedding or we go to a wedding that has a uh, reception with a dance afterwards and they play a swing, doll, swing dance song, you know, we'll get on the dance floor like, oh, this old thing, and then boom, boom, bust out that move. And people are like, oh, <laughs> woo, they're good. Now, little do they know, we're not we have one move that we do, but we do it really well. Yeah. <laughs> it's Parker's last Sunday, so maybe during the reception if he wants. Uh, so we would, uh, we would do that move, and they oh, my goodness. Now, no one would say, what a male chauvinistic pig. Do you see how he's leading? Like, he's superior, she's inferior. No, nor would they say, wow, he is so good or she is so good. No, they would say, wow, they're good. Because there's synergy. There's a symbiotic relationship. It's intended by design, and it works beautifully. And when that happens, we can rejoice in the beauty of the dance.